Lord, we are here today to allow you, through your Holy Spirit and your messenger, to challenge us in the area of our thinking and our attitudes and our souls, Lord, to, to correct, Lord, things that, that have been distorted by this world and to bring new life and freshness to how we see life and how we are to live life for your glory. So I ask, Lord, this morning that as your messenger, you would simply work through me that your church would be strengthened and encouraged and built up because of our time in this passage of Scripture. Lord, help us to see how it connects to us, and Lord, how we can glorify you by listening and honoring, um, Lord, what you're saying in this passage. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning, um, I want to draw your attention to a phrase that you see often throughout the week. And in many places, it's a phrase that we probably take for granted just because it's become so much of the part of the fabric of our society. It's a phrase that brings us comfort, brings us assurance, and uh, I think instills in us some confidence. It's found in grocery stores, um, hospitals, airports, um, places like UPS and FedEx, Gun shops, pet shops, coffee shops, and the expression is, handle with what? Care. It's a phrase that we're thankful for. It warns us, it cautions us, it comforts us, depending on how it's used in its context. And we find it actually here in this text It says it a little differently, but look at verse 15 just just for a moment. Here's what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Handling the word of truth with care. Now, with that phrase being so prevalent in our society for so many different reasons, why is it that so many people do not handle the Word of God with care? You see, handle with care on the side of the box, you're supposed to be very, very gentle and careful and make sure that it stands up the right way when you place it down. Because you do not want anything inside to be damaged. When it comes to the word of God, we have the responsibility to handle it with care so that we do not damage the content, the message contained in that word or distort it in any way. So in 2 Timothy, in chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul shifts from his focus where he's challenging Timothy to be an unashamed soldier who endures for the sake of the gospel, to being an unashamed teacher who carefully handles the word of God for the sake of the gospel. So from chapter 2 and verse 14 through the end of the chapter, verse 26, Paul deals with two issues. What kind of teaching we need in the church. Secondly, what kind of teachers we need in the church. And we're going to focus on the first part of that question, or the first of those topics, what kind of teaching we need in our churches. 
kind of teaching that should take place in the context of church. And by that, I do not simply mean as we gather on a Sunday morning. I mean in the total picture of who we are as the church, whether it's in our homes, where we're having any devotional time or, or teaching our children in that context, whether it's in a small group, whether it's in a home group, whether it's in a Sunday school class, when you're meeting one-on-one over coffee at Starbucks, how you handle the Word of God is important to God, and it's also important to your life and your walk in Christ-likeness. Mishandle the Word of God, and you will be distorted in your understanding of what He wants you to do and how He wants you to live for His glory. So in verse 14, it says this, Remind them of these things and charge them before God. So the question here is, who are the them that Paul is talking about? Now, I think we could confidently say that the them would probably include all the believers in Ephesus because Paul is writing to Timothy, but what was common practice is even if there was a personal letter, it was read in the context of the church because Paul would speak authoritatively about various issues in a letter, and when Timothy would stand up and read the letter from Paul, Paul is speaking to Timothy, but he's also speaking to the church. So we recognize that's the case. But I think probably in the context of what's going on here, if you go back to chapter 2 and verse 2, it talks about there in the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's, there's faithful men now that are being targeted. These faithful men that are going to carry on the ministry. These faithful men who also, like Timothy, are charged to guard the word of God. And to guard the gospel. And so he is to remind them first of all. And literally to keep reminding them of these things. What are the, these things? Paul is most likely referring to what has just been said in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Suffering and endurance that has an eye to glory in heaven are the hallmarks of a faithful follower of Christ. Remind them of that. In fact, that's what he has said over and over and over again in that chapter. It's what the soldier of Christ does. It's what Christ did. It's what Paul did. And it's what the faithful saying teaches. And so he's saying, listen, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, just know that suffering and endurance with an eye to glory is what I'm calling you to. So remind them of these Things. This is the backdrop now, the place setting, so to speak, that Paul is giving as he gives this next charge. He says, charge them, charge them. Now Paul ch- changes his tone a little bit here and urges Timothy to charge or warn these faithful men concerning the content of their teaching and the character of of the teacher. And this warning, friends, if you notice, is taking place in what context? Before God. So this is a, a solemn warning. And Paul is drawing attention to the fact, I'm warning you, but I'm doing this before God. You are accountable, not just to me, but accountable to God for what 
is about to be said. And these men are going to be accountable to God also. So this is a warning for those who are called to handle the word. Pastors, student ministry leaders, Sunday school teachers, Christian school teachers, school administrators, homeschool leaders, and home group leaders. Ladies Bible study leaders, men-to-men leaders, small group leaders, one-to-one leaders, parents, husbands, Christians, all of us as we handle the Word of God. Friends, this is rubber-meets-the-road stuff in this section of Scripture. And it's going to help us all evaluate how we are going to be teaching and handling the Word. Let's just think about this proposition, how I'm pulling it all together, and I think you'll see it unfold clearly as we move through this passage. God is calling us to oppose false teaching in a manner that only he approves. There are different ways that we could attempt to oppose false teaching. But there's a way that he approves. There's a way that he tells us to handle it. And that's what these few verses are talking about. Paul is stressing to Timothy, charge these men because there are issues now that are taking place in Ephesus, and you need to be able to handle them appropriately. So we want to begin by looking at what we're, look, what we're calling the kind of teaching to avoid. Look at verse 14. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers, but avoid irreverent babble. This is verse 16 now. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their walk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now, friends, this is the kind of teaching in the church that we want to avoid. And let's tease these out. Let's look at them a little bit more. We're going to see three different kinds of teaching or three different, I want to say, arenas um, that Paul is talking about here. First of all, uh, we want to look at it from this perspective, the nature of false teaching. First of all, there is these quarrels about words, or literally, word wars, word fights. Right? It's the kind of intellectual banter over obscure points of doctrine by people who really are not looking to grow in obedience to God. These are never-ending arguments where most of the people arguing are in it more for the fight and for their own pride rather than to seek to edify others. Now, in today's context, this is going to be played out graphically on blogs, bulletin boards, chat forums, social media. And you have probably been there before. Someone makes a comment, and that's a, it's a little off theologically, and you're like, oh, I can't let that go. And so you jump in. That's not right. This is what the Bible says. And they come back and say, well, that might be your interpretation. And then you say, well, it's not just my interpretation. This is God's interpretation because his word says this. And you start quoting verses, and they start quoting verses, blah, 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 blah. And you end up having this argument in the context of social media. And if you think that it's going to resolve itself, it's not. Because most of the time, there are people out there that are just looking for a fight. They're careful and clever um, 
apologizers means they can argue. You guys know what debate is? Anyone here ever do debate in high school or college? All right, there's a couple of people. Don't talk to them. They'll win. Um, <laughs> the purpose of debate has nothing to do with the content. The purpose of debate is simply to win the argument. And some people can win an argument because of the skill of language and logic and their ability to argue, but they can be totally wrong. Okay? And so we can get sucked into this. So these people love to wrangle over words. They love to show how smart they are. They love to put others in their place. And that's why in a lot of blogs now, you have this little statement at the bottom of the article, comments closed. I mean, the, the person who's writing the blog is just tired of all the nonsense that comes in the comment section. And friends, Paul is charging um, Timothy and us here to avoid the kind of Word war behavior. He's telling Timothy to get, to really avoid getting sucked into arguments that will never be solved. And he's saying to us, be careful that you don't drift away into word fights. Now, friends, there's a temptation. There's also clever tactics that people will use to try and draw you into these things. And as a pastor, I get them every once in a while, and the argument is, well, you're a pastor, aren't you supposed to help people with their growth in Christ? You know, I got this one email where a guy listed like 57 verses, and he just listed 57 verses and said, "Um, would you please comment on these verses and, you know, what you think they're teaching? And I wrote back and said, no, I have a church to pastor. Well, aren't you supposed to care about people who have questions about the Bible? And I said, You have a pastor, hopefully, talk to him. If this is coming from my congregation, I will take time with them. But you see, they suck you in and want you to feel guilty. There's all different tactics they use. Avoid it. Avoid it. Then there's irreverent babble, verse 16. Irreverent babble. And by the way, I think there's a progression going on here in what Paul is laying down. These these war words, then there's this irreverent babble. This seems to be more serious and dangerous. It has the idea of taking the word of God and the things of God lightly and using them for personal gain. And friends, we find this played out in our context in what's called the prosperity gospel. That's where uh, the, the health and wealth and prosperity of life is pushed by using the word of God. But what happens is they take isolated verses and impose new meaning on them. So for example, in Psalm 1, where it says, blessed is the man, they're saying, well, see, God wants you to be blessed. And then a little later on it says, and it says, you know, if you do these things, he'll make your way, what? Prosperous. See, you want to be blessed, and you want to be prosperous. And then they'll go to Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given unto you. So if you give in the offering plate today, God will shower down prosperity on you. And me. But on you. Right? That's the idea behind it. And then Joshua 1.8, you know, read the Bible and you will be prosperous and successful. The problem is what the Bible is talking about is not health, wealth, and prosperity as they would frame it. It means you'll be walking with God. You'll be blessed because you're right with God. You may have 
Physical prosperity, you may not. That's not the issue. Now, in the Old Testament, there were blessings for obedience, but they will take these as promises. They will take these as truths and put new meaning on them. And friends, their, their approach is clever because those who are, might want to say, ignorant of, of the word of God, and so many people in Christian context are not too knowledgeable about the word of God, that's not a, a horrible pejorative statement. I think it's a reality. That's why we have so many people in churches that teach this kind of stuff. It sounds biblical. And people are confused and fall prey to his teaching. So if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, jump, just go back a page or so in your Bible. We see that the irreverent babble is tied to Gnostic thinking that was prevalent in that day. It comes from the Greek ideas. Look at verse 20. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Oh, we've had that in 2 Timothy. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. See, this, this knowledge is part of this Gnostic idea, this Greek idea that... Um, ended up being set above the word of God, above the gospel. So there were people in the church who were looking down on others because they had not arrived at the place that they were at where they had this special kind of knowledge. And they they believed this, this knowledge was a key to being enlightened. And that was one of the key battles in the early church. Again, we see this played out today. I grew up in a culture, a Christian culture, that believed in speaking in tongues. And if you didn't speak in tongues, you were not as enlightened. You did not have the Holy Spirit. But as I came to know the Lord, the Lord drew me in. I began to open the Word of God on this topic because my my whole family was, was raised in a charismatic context. We began to see that that's not what Scripture teaches. And that what was being said is really a bad interpretation of what Scripture says. That there is no kind of second enlightenment for us. When we embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have the Holy Spirit. He resides in us. But see, there was this teaching that says, well, you know, you're you're limited in your scope of understanding because you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. It's like, you know what? I do have the power of the Holy Spirit because this is what the Bible says. But you see, there's this attitude of, well, you're missing out because you don't have this key thing. And so these are just some of the kinds of things that are this irreverent babble. It's not taking the word of God seriously. It's not handling it with care. And it runs rampant then in the church. That also then leads to what we'll just call serious heresy. Word wars lead to irreverent talk, and that leads to serious heresy. I'm using the word heresy here because it simply means false teaching. And mark it well, heresy always begins as a truth that is out of balance. Just a little bit distorted. There's always an element of truth that draws people in. There are verses taken out of context, misinterpreted, that back up their false teaching. And they prey on the untaught, who are looking for something more in their faith. But they actually lead people away from following God and depending on Christ and his sacrifice. Notice what it says in our passage, verse 17 and 18. Among them are 
Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. Right? They've wandered from the truth. They stepped away from the truth. They have fallen into the ditch. The path of truth, and there's the ditch of error. That's where they're at right now. And they're saying the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. So what they were teaching was that the resurrection had already happened. But understand the context here is that these were men who were caught up with a a Gnostic or Greek view of life. And what they were saying is that the resurrection already happened because in their view, anything physical, matter, was evil, the spirit was good. And the resurrection that they're talking about here is not a physical resurrection, it's the spiritual resurrection. And what they're saying is that our bodies have already been glorified. We have been resurrected. And because we have been resurrected spiritually, we now have our glorified bodies. But since our glorified bodies are physical, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. You see where this logic goes. Therefore, I can be promiscuous, and it's okay. Because my body is irrelevant. I have been glorified. You can see how that would run rampant in the church. And all these different ideas that that God has been teaching and the apostles have been identifying just kind of fall flat because there's a new teaching that trumps all that. Now Paul's purpose here is not to give an argument against what Hymenaeus and Philetus are teaching, he's giving it to show and to give an example of the kind of heresy that happens when the word of God is mishandled, when it's not handled with care. And what they ended up doing is marrying Greek philosophy with the word of God and coming up with a false teaching. Call that syncretism. Take an idea from the world and you bring it in with scripture and you kind of Mix it together and you say, whoop, here's the teaching. Okay? So like I said, Paul's point is not so much to develop that argument against them, but it's simply to say this. And here's the bottom line of this. This is the kind of teaching that needs to be avoided in the church. Secondly, the, the ultimate embrace of false, false teaching comes in degrees, little by little. Word wars, irreverent babble, and ultimately false teaching. Now, to help us, and I do not want you to be you know, overwhelmed with this to try and get it all down, but I just sat down and I said, all right, I'm just going to write down in the years that I've been in ministry, probably the last 20 years or so, uh, kind of thinking through it, what are some recent examples of these word wars, or irreverent, irreverent babble, or... Um, even heresies, and there's probably a lot more heresies I could put down here, but I think I have, what, eight of these? Um, no, I don't. I have 13 of these, all right? So just think through these, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make much comment on, on them, but just, just kind of maybe sit back and take them in and say, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that, okay? And I remember the, the world that was going on at that point in time and how these things maybe rocked Christian culture, all right? The first one. Um, numerology. You guys remember this? There are hidden codes in the Bible. And people would write these books and they would say in these numbers are these hidden codes. In fact, if you take Mikhail Gorbachev's name, you will come up with Antichrist. 
Right, you just use these formulas and you'll figure this out. And a lot of people were now using these as the basis for telling people what they should and shouldn't do and what was happening in the last days and how they should respond as Christians. Angelology. Now, angelology certainly is a proper discipline in our study of the Word of God, but what I'm emphasizing here is there was a time when it just seems like angels were everywhere, Right? And this focus on my guardian angel. I've got to get in touch with my guardian angel. And, you know, there's, there's just this angel. And I've got to make sure that, that I am aware of this angel and I seek to understand. And, of course, this is coming from a pagan world into Christian culture. KJV onlyism. You guys remember this? All right, it still is. And I was actually really, really surprised about this um, to some degree. There's only one Bible, and it's truly inspired. When I went to England last year... Um, we were at a place called the Highbury Center, which is a, like a Christian like boarding house, so to speak. And my wife and I were staying there for a few days. And they would have like a, a breakfast in the morning. You go into this room. It was really, really nice. And uh, um, there was a guy the first day, and he introduced himself to other people. You could hear him. He was very loud. You know, hi, I'm an evangelist. Um, and, you know, hey. And he basically talked to everyone around that room except for us um, about their need for salvation and were they saved and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, hey, that's encouraging. I, I mean, that's a guy who's bold and he's trying to get up conversation and you know, sharing the gospel. And then the last couple of days uh, when I came down for breakfast, you know, he actually had cornered a couple of people. He says, you know, there's something else. Now that I know that you're a savior or you're, you're, you're a believer, um, there's something else I need to tell you, and that is that the King James is the only inspired word of God. And I'm sitting there thinking, this guy has two gospels. He's got the true gospel, but now he's added to that. You must believe in the King James Bible. And he used all these different arguments. And trust me, I grew up in the context where that was being fought over, um, and it was really, really sad, and it was a distraction for the church. Spiritual warfare, where there's an overemphasis on the demonic world behind everything, even our sins. So um, if, if you struggle with lying, it's because you have the demon of lying. If you are fearing, it's because you have the demon of fear. If you have a cold, which I do right now, it's due to the demon of sickness. And so you need deliverance. And so you have these deliverance ministries to cast out these demons. And ultimately what that said is, it's not your responsibility that you're lying. The devil made me do it. Okay, really, that's what happens. So you have this distortion, right? Um, Eschatology. Now certainly eschatology is a proper thing to understand, but the question is which view, and I'm not so concerned about the, the four major views as I am concerned about the 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 88, which didn't happen, and so the sequel came out, 89 reasons, and my 89th reason would be because I was wrong last year, right, um, which should mean I shouldn't even publish this book, but I did anyway, right, I wasn't me, Edgar Weisenhardt did that, and he also published a book in 93 and in 94. And, of course, more recently, Harold Camping, on May 21, 2011, predicted the Lord was going to return. And, friends, there's so much of Christian culture that gets consumed with this stuff, right? And this becomes what everyone's focusing on. Oh, no, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. You know, know, the the planets have aligned, and I see this verse of Scripture here, and the moon's full of blood, and all this kind of stuff, right? And, wah! And it's a distraction. Y2K. There was going to be some blips. We knew that. But what we were hearing was this is God's judgment. He was going to come, and the whole world's going to change, and you're going to have to be ready. And The Red Letter Bible. The Red Letter Bible. What about that? Well, there was a, there was a season there, um, probably in the 
early 2000s, where the emphasis was on the words of Christ. And in fact, the, uh, the feminists really liked that because it meant that they didn't have to listen to what Paul had to say. But that's a distortion of the doctrine of inspiration. But the, the, the subtlety of that is it doesn't matter what it says anywhere else in the Bible. What really matters is what Jesus says. Except Jesus was part of the Godhead that breathed out the whole word of God, right? So you, you, you kind of get yourself in a quandary if you embrace that. Here's a couple more. Death encounters. People who die and go to heaven but wake up on earth, write a book, and make a movie. All right, 90 minutes in heaven. Heaven is for real. And then people that are part of that come out and say, you know what, I really wasn't telling the truth after all. But let me tell you what, on, on the Christian TV shows, woohoo! I just did a Google search, and it's just like, how many people are being interviewed about their experience in going to heaven and coming back? They're all looking for a book publishing agreement. My friends, to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. We need to be really, really careful about the kind of stuff. So, oh, wow, that really happened. Because what happens when we, when we do that is we, we want to hear their story rather than hear God's story. Remember the Da Vinci Code? Oh, I skipped one there. Da Vinci Code, of course, challenged the deity of Christ, among other things. The new apostolic reformation, which is happening up at Bethel Church and many churches around, where, where there's this belief that the apostolic era has been ushered in again. There are now... Um, Apostles who speak directly for God and from God. A whole bunch of craziness going on there. The prayer of Jabez, do you guys remember that? It's a good prayer. The problem is it's not your prayer. And in fact, if you want to, First Chronicles 4.10, here's what it says. Jabez called upon the Lord, of, uh, the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. Let me ask you a question. Square that prayer, which is appropriate for that particular occasion, with what Paul is saying to Timothy now. And that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. Wait a second. What about suffering for the sake of the gospel? You know, it says here, enlarge my border. Sadly, God is doing that in my later years. I don't know that that's what it means. But you see, you, you, can, you, can, you can put into Scripture things that it's not saying. But it becomes a mantra rather than a, a prayer we need to study in its context and glean from open theism, which basically says God doesn't know the future. Oh, he chose us before the creation of the world, but he doesn't know what's going to happen after he saves us. Nonsense. The emergent church, which was a return to medieval kind of practices, questioning God. Now, these are all departures from the pattern of sound words, which were to follow that Paul talks about. They're a departure from the good deposit of the gospel that we're called to guard. So the, the point here is this, guys. We're living in the thick of this kind of stuff. We are to avoid these word wars, this irreverent babble. We're to avoid heresy. But you can't know 
it's that kind of stuff unless you have a grasp of the Word of God. But notice also the danger of false teaching. Just look at the words that are used to describe what happens when this kind of teaching takes place. All right? Begins, it does no good. In other words, it really isn't useful. It's not beneficial. It's not profitable. It isn't growing people in godliness. It isn't drawing people's attention to their need for repentance. It isn't moving the participants to see Christ afresh and all his, in all his glory. It isn't doing anyone any good. It doesn't edify. It doesn't build up the body. Secondly, it ruins the hearers. Literally, that word ruin means, what's the word, Greek word? Catastrophe from which we get the word what? Catastrophe. So the result of these word wars is that people's lives then become a catastrophe. That's what Paul is saying. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Paul fleshes out what this catastrophic ruin looks like. He says that these quarrels about words produce, verse 4, Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So it's a life of endless and oppressive conflict. All right? Not only that, it leads to more ungodliness. This flows out of the irreverent babble section. False teaching will lead those who identify themselves as Christians into more and more ungodliness. Worldly ideas are accepted and taught, and Christians start to embrace them as truth, which leads to further sin. One of these, just as an example, as many to choose from, would be the self-esteem cult of the late 80s and 90s that crept into the church. And the church embraced wholeheartedly this concept of self-esteem as central to man's problems. So low self-esteem became the reason behind much of uh, what um, mankind was struggling with. So someone is taking drugs, the reason they're taking drugs is what? They have low self-esteem. Or let's say someone has committed a crime. Why do they commit the crime? It must be their low self-esteem. Or a child is misbehaving in class. Well, that child must be experiencing low self-esteem. It was the catch-all answer for every problem. And the sad reality, friends, is that this solution became the solution that was being preached from the pulpits in America. The church embraced it. And as, as different you know, Bible studies went out in the church, the Bible studies were, how can you build up your self-esteem? And verses of Scripture were brought in to help people understand how they can build up their self-esteem. And what ended up is we had a bunch of people now, not just in the church, but even outside the church, that had been ushered into a legitimacy for self-love, self-promotion, selfishness, and ultimately um, their own pride. Because that's what self-esteem is all about. It's all about me feeling good about myself. I am what is important. Like I said, it's coming from the pulpits of America. Number four, it spreads like gangrene. It's not a pretty picture. This is a word that comes out of the battlefield 
someone gets hurt, gets a cut, gets a slash on one of their, one of their limbs, gangrene can set in. And it has two significant realities. Number one, it never stops spreading. If left unattended, it will keep expanding and growing and take over your limbs and ultimately kill you. Secondly, it always gets worse. The only solution is to cut it out or to remove the infected limb or it will destroy you. And this is what this false teaching does. This is, this is what this irreverent babble does. If it's not dealt with, it will spread and it will cause havoc. And ultimately, number five, it upsets the household of some. Upsets the faith of some. Literally, it overturns, it upsets, it destroys the faith. Christians can be confused and distorted in their understanding of the true gospel because of the gangrenous effect of false teaching in their lives. Do you guys, this is, we're getting into Christmas season. Commercials haven't quite started yet. I've seen some decorations out there. But one of the things that happens during the Christmas season is the commercials on TV start focusing on the latest game from Mattel, right? You guys remember the game Kerplunk? You know what I'm talking about, Kerplunk? Oh, come on, you've, I'm sure you've, 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 you probably go to bed at night thinking Kerplunk, right? And it's this game where you, you have these, these long skewers. They're like toothpicks, and um, you probably use them all to roast marshmallows or something like that. But, but they, they, and, and you put them in this contraption kind of around the different places. Then you, you pour marbles on top, and the game begins. And the idea is to pull out one of the skewers without a marble dropping. All right? As you do it, you get it out. It's like, oh, great. Now your turn. <laughs> and someone pulls it out, and it's like, ah, didn't drop yet, right? Uh, before long, though, someone pulls one out, and all of a sudden, kerplunk, 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 kerplunk. Now, the point here, guys, is this, is that so much of this false teaching, so much of this irreverent babble and war of words is like playing this game of kerplunk. We, we pull one thing out. It's like, ah, oh, didn't really do that much. But you pull enough of them, friends, and what happens is it upsets the faith of even believers. And they are confused because all the marbles of their, their, their doctrine now is just falling all over the place. And they're not sure how to figure it all out. And many times people walk away confused, distorted in their thinking and understanding, and just giving up. Now, friends, we do not want that to happen at Gateway. We do not want that to happen in any context where we have the privilege and opportunity of opening the word of God. This is the kind of teaching then that we need to avoid. And now we want to think about the kind of teaching that we need to pursue. So in verse 15, we're going we're to see this played out for us. Do your best, Paul says to Timothy, and ultimately to us, to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And we're going to begin talking about our attitude. We need to have an attitude that is eager to please God. The story is told of a young man who studied his violin with this world-class and world-renowned master. And the day of his recital came. And he got up on the stage and he started to play his violin and he was just, he was just tearing it up. 
And when he got done, the people in the, in the audience stood up and just started to clap. And the young man kept his head face forward. People were cheering. People were screaming, just amazed that this was his first time ever playing. But he was not having any of it. He looked up into the balcony, and there was an older man sitting up there. And it wasn't until he smiled and nodded his head that this young man began to smile himself. Because all he was concerned about was pleasing his master. It didn't matter what everyone else thought. Now, friends, the reality is true, and that is this, that our attitude must be to please the audience of one, and that is God himself. We must remember that what we are doing is for the glory of God. He says, do your best to present yourself to God in order to be approved. So we look to him to say, well done. We look to him to find assurance and comfort with the things that we do. Some may scorn you. Some may mock your eagerness to proclaim God's truth. But it doesn't matter what man thinks. It only matters what God thinks. Now, it's easier said than done. Through the years, as a pastor, I've been told a number of things. I highlighted a few for you this morning. These did not come from your lips, okay? Pastor, you preach too long. You may have thought that, but it didn't come from your lips. <laughs> Pastor, you preach too short. There's one person in this world, I think, that may have had that idea. Pastor, you talk too much about sin. Pastor, you don't talk about sin enough. Pastor, I wish you would talk about your personal experiences more. Pastor, I wish you would stop talking about yourself so much. Pastor, we need to hear the gospel of God's love more. Why are you always talking about the gospel? You should always wear a tie. Pastor, you need to wear shorts. Now, here's my point. Who are you going to please? And when you choose to please God and not listen to everyone's comment about what they think you should be doing, people do not like it. Who is going to be the audience that you're seeking approval from? Once you start trying to please man, you will be ensnared in never-ending bondage. Because listen, if I showed up in a tie, then the people that love shorts will get upset. If I show up in shorts, then the people in ties will get upset. And so on it goes. And what I would have to do then as a pastor is say, God, what do you want me to do? And do it. And if people don't like it, and oftentimes the people don't like it, have a sin issue that they need to deal with. Like I said, these didn't come from your lips. Yet. When we seek to teach or preach with, with God as our audience, he will guide us through his word and people will be fed with the solid food that they really need rather than the junk food that they think that they need. Now friends, we, we need the whole counsel of God. If our attitudes as listeners, as participants in a Sunday morning gathering like this is saying, God, 
I may not like how you're going to confront me with your word. I may not like the things that you're going to expose about my sinful life, but I want to grow in you, then we are going to be moving in the right direction. But if all you're wanting is, is for me to stroke you and to say, you know, just God loves you and God wants to give the best for you and he wants you to be happy and, you know, just go out there and, 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 and live your life and, you know, without actually saying, this is what God said. And I have failed, and you have failed. There's a responsibility not just for the pastor or the teacher, but there's also a responsibility for the listener to make sure that they're humble before God to hear what he has to say through that person. Your attitude should be an eagerness to please God. Secondly, your work ethic. You're eager to work hard. A worker who has no need to be ashamed The picture here is of a craftsman and his work. You are the craftsman, and your tool is the word of God. That requires work ethic for a carpenter to put together, let's just say, for example, a chicken coop. He doesn't just grab some random wood and some random nails and seek to randomly hammer nails through wood, all the while thinking to himself, hey, I'm a craftsman. You see, that would have been me going into Home Depot in my early life. I need to get something. I don't know what I'm getting, but that looks like it's right, and I'll use these nails, and I'll use this hammer, and it was all the wrong combination. Thinking that I was, hey, I'm, I'm a handyman, until the thing just goes, falls down, right? No, this craftsman needs to take his, his craft seriously. He needs to be an eager worker, willing to work hard at his task. He needs to have a plan and know the difference between the different kinds of woods and nails and hammers and glues that are available to him. But it takes hard work to master that kind of knowledge and to be gifted with those tools. The sad reality, friends, as we think about the Word of God, is that many within the body of Christ, and this is not a reflection of gateway, but I just challenge you, many within the body of Christ do not want to do the kind of work so that they can have giftedness in handling the tools. The result of that, however, is you're open to confusion. You're open to false teaching. You're all open to handling the word of God in an improper way. But when a craftsman uses his tools and uses his gifts and has a plan and works hard and takes it seriously, What what happens is that people come by and they look at it and they say, wow, that must have taken some time to put all that together. And you probably have seen some people at craft shows in different places and you walk by and you're like, man, that's pretty impressive. You're like, I can never do that. But they've been doing it over and over and over and over again that to them now it's become second nature and they can whip these things out fast. As teachers, God, through Paul, is telling Timothy and us that our ministry of the word is an extremely serious matter. And not one to be taken lightly or casually. Hear this, there's no room for laziness or sloth in the teaching of God's word. That means we're we're seeing our teaching as a great responsibility. That means that we're diligent to take the time necessary to prepare for our teaching. So looking over the scriptures, 
making sure we understand what the word of God is actually saying, not just leaving things to the last minute and grabbing our stuff and going and hoping that the Holy Spirit somehow can intervene and make something out of the mess that you've created. And you're saying, Pastor Rod, that's, that's me. I, I'm always panicked. That, you know, Well, I am too, right? I so many times feel like what I have here is a dog's breakfast, right? Uh, it just means you just throw a whole bunch of different stuff in there and hopefully some good stuff will come out. But... God also knows the diligence and the time that you've put in, and he works through that, and he works out of that. And there are times, there are times when he hands you a week or a situation that is full of things that you were not expecting, and he does intervene, and he comes in that moment, and he helps you out. But that is the exception. That is not the habit that we should have. So if you preach... Paul is saying, be diligent in your preaching. If you teach in any capacity, take it seriously. Be diligent. Work hard at it. And you're not going to be perfect. But you can approach teaching with the right attitude that says, I'm giving it my best. I'm teachable, willing to be corrected. I'm growing personally, not just going through the motions of teaching. And I'm responsible with what God has given me. So you can be a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, who has the right attitude and has the right work ethic. But not only that, we want to talk now about your skill set. Your skill set. This worker has an eagerness to rightfully handle the word of truth. Teachers have been given the responsibility to handle this word of truth. But you have to work with them is the word of truth. This is your tool. This is what you have to work with. It is truth. It's subjective. It's accurate. It's knowable. It's not subjective and fluid. And everything you do or say in your teaching is to explain, illustrate, or to apply that truth. You are to be a craftsman who's skilled at your trade. Imagine you hire a craftsman, to build you a house. And he shows up without a level, without a square, without tape, without a set of blueprints. Probably be concerned. And if you asked him how he was going to build a house, and he said, well, there are different ways of building a house. You can start with the foundation. I know a lot of people like that. It's been popular through the years. Um, you can start by building the roof first. And then kind of, you know, as you go, it rises up. You can start with the electrical or even the plumbing. But really, who is to say which way is right? You probably would be a little concerned. See, rightly handling means literally to cut a path or a road in a straight direction so that the traveler may go directly to his destination. It's a, it's a farming metaphor, and it means to plow a straight furrow. It's the idea of not being distracted or getting off course by false teaching, but to cut a straight line through the text. Literally, it means cutting it straight so that you can get to the truth and you can see what it says and that your hearers can reach the destination of godliness that flows out of that text. So this call to rightly handle the word of truth is a skill for all who teach the word. 
So the idea of rightly handling is the hardworking craftsman handles the word of God accurately and carefully, making sure that it is unearthed and unpacked in a way that reflects what the word of God is actually saying. So we recognize that there are some basic principles, some basic guidelines that help us to come to God's word carefully and appropriately. And friends, this is much of what we do in what we call the Simeon Trust Training. The purpose of that is to help those that are part of the body of Christ develop some gifts and some tools to know how to approach the Word of God and to begin to understand how to rightly handle the Word of God. David Helm uses, I think, a wonderful word picture. And it's a picture of, he basically says, we don't want to be drunk teachers or preachers. He says the, the teacher's temptation is to use the Scripture like the drunk uses a streetlight more for support than illumination. So the drunk comes along, right, and he's drunk, and so he's trying to find a place to prop himself up. And so he props himself up against the, the streetlight. It's not about the light. It's about being propped up. And his point here is this, that many times we come to the Word of God like a drunk for the purpose of propping ourselves up rather than for allowing the light to actually shine and to see what the Word of God is actually saying. So here are some questions for a potential teacher of the Bible to ask themselves before, during, or after they prepared or taught a passage of Scripture. And these, again, flow out of the Simeon Trust. Um, Hopefully these will be helpful to you. We'll make them quick. You don't have to get everything down. First of all, what is the genre that that you have in front of you? There are different kinds of genre in the Bible, and you approach different genres in different ways. There's narrative, there's wisdom, there's poetry, there's prophecy, there's gospel, there's epistle, there's apocalyptic. Let me ask you this. Would you read a love letter differently than you'd read a newspaper? What's the answer? I hope so. Maybe if your husband's confused, you write your love letter in a newspaper, okay? Are you going to read a novel differently than the obituaries? They're different kind of genres, different kind of writing. Of course you are. Are you going to read your life insurance policy differently than you're going to read the back of the cereal box? You might understand the words in the back of the cereal box, right? Of course you are. The point I'm trying to make here, trying to show you, is that there are different kinds of writing, and different kinds of writing need to be approached in ways that reflect that kind of writing. So if you're looking at narrative, you're looking at the storyline, you're looking at the plot line. If you're in poetry, you're trying to understand, okay, there is rhyme and reason to what's going on here in this. There's, there's, there's an approach I need to take that's different than narrative. And of course, in some genres in the Bible, the Gospels in particular, the Gospels contain narrative and parables and poetry and discourse and a variety of different genres within that one genre. But genre is important. Secondly, what is the melodic line? What is the overall theme of the book that my text is in, and how does my particular text support or connect to that theme? Texts don't stand in isolation. They're connected to the greater text of the book that they're in. The writer of that book has a reason why that text is there, and it connects to the overall purpose 
of why that writer is writing that book. And when you've apprehended the melodic line of the book, you can begin to ask yourself how your text supports and is connected to the melodic line. So here we are in 2 Timothy, and we've determined that the melodic line of this book is enduring hardship for the sake of the gospel. How does the passage that we're in right now connect to that particular melodic line? It tells us that part of enduring hardship is opposing false teaching by rightly handling the word of God. See, it's connected to this overall theme. And the more we can grasp that, it's going to be helpful as we look at our particular passage of Scripture. Then there's the original audience. This is important. Have I fully considered how the original audience understood this text, or am I going straight from the text to today? And what happens is if we bypass the original audience, we can actually make a passage say or mean something for today that it didn't mean to that original audience. So this book, or this letter, or this poem, or history was written to a particular audience for a particular purpose in a particular time. And without that guidance, I may make that passage say something that I think is relevant for today that is not actually what the writer was intending. And that moves us to the fourth thing, the author's intent. Am I saying the same thing that the original author was saying in and with this text? So the writer of every book has an intent, has a purpose, is trying to accomplish something. And I want to make sure that as I'm studying the Bible, and we as teachers need to make sure as we're studying the Bible to, to grasp that, to understand that. Then, of course, there's context. That means you look at the surrounding context of that passage to help you understand the passage or the verse that you're teaching. Again, text do not stand in isolation. They're connected to their greater context. So we need to understand how they fit into that context. And the last one is this word exegesis. is another word, eisegesis. But exegesis is saying here, am I, am I imposing my thoughts and interpretations on the text? That would be eisegesis. That's putting something in. Or am I willing uh, to allow the text to speak for itself. That's exegesis, where I'm mining what is there. I'm looking for what is there. I'm not bringing to the text something that isn't there and imposing it on the text. And see, that happens a lot. You're sitting around in you know, Bible study, and the question's asked, what do you think this passage means? Quite honestly, friends, it doesn't matter what you think it means. What matters is what it means. And so you need to determine how do you determine or how do you figure out what it means. You don't determine that by subjective feelings. You do that by mining the passage. So am I saying more than the passage is saying? Am I saying less than the passage is saying? There's a lot more that we could talk about as far as principles to help us ascertain what the, what the word of God is saying. But, but, but get this, the, the goal here is that we as teachers would have a right attitude, we'd have a work ethic, and we would develop the skills to handle the text of Scripture before us with care and with accuracy. And then we move to this last section, the kind of teaching to stand on, the kind of teaching to stand on. He gives us a little bit of counsel and guidance now as to, I want to say, the application of Scripture. 
It's a picture of God's church as a building that has a firm foundation. And on that foundation, there is a seal. And on that seal are written two sayings. Let's read verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let's take the first one. This first saying comes from Numbers chapter 16 and verse 5. And in that passage, um, what we find is Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. But one day, um, he encounters a rebellion led by Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and On. And they rise up against Moses and they challenge his leadership. In particular, they challenge his leadership on the grounds that he is calling for the people of Israel to be holy to God. And hear now what they say. We'll hear just a story from Numbers 16, beginning at verse 2. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For in all the con- or for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? What they were challenging here is that Moses is calling the congregation to obey the commands of God to be holy. He's only repeating what God has told him to say to the people. Verse 4, when Moses heard it, he fell on his face and said to Korah and all his company, in the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses will bring, uh, he will bring near to him. The next morning Moses had all the followers of Korah stand together and the rest of Israel separated themselves from them. It's no, never a good sign when that happens. And the Lord opened up the earth and swallowed these this 250 rebellious leaders. <clears throat> On that day, Israel understood that the Lord knows those who are his. Get this. Those who are his are called to live according to God's commandments and to pursue holiness. It's not good enough to have a form of godliness, but not be true followers of God, be people who do not want to pursue what God says they are to pursue. So this first application point, this first teaching point, is teaching that calls for the pursuit of holiness. When we teach the word of God, one of the the arms, one of the goals, one of the application points that we want for those that are under the teaching is to move them toward the pursuit of Christ-likeness. But the ungodly do not value holiness before God. And that's why Korah and all of his group were judged by God. But as teachers of the word, we want to move people to pursue holiness, to pursue understanding the character of Christ. And when they see who he is, to call them to repentance, To ask the question, what do I need to do to be more like Christ? And the Lord knows who are his. They are the ones who keep his commandments. They are the ones who pursue holiness. Now the reality is, friends, and this is where Korah and his followers were getting confused, is that all of us who are in Christ are what? Holy. 
But even though we are holy because of what Christ has done, that's our condition, we are also to be holy. We are to live in the same way that we are identified as being holy. That's why Peter says, be holy, for you are holy. That's what you are. Now live like that. So it's a, it's a challenge for Christians then in their pursuit of Christ-likeness to be more and more like Christ. It's a positive pursuit. The next one, of course, is more negative. It's teaching that calls for the departure from sin. It says, let everyone who, come, who names the name of the Lord, those who know the Lord, depart from iniquity. So if you're a follower of Christ, you should be doing all you can to depart from sin, to depart from iniquity, to depart from wickedness and evil. Now, friends, we all struggle with sin. We all face the, the conflict that sin brings and the temptation that is there. And we want to make progress. True believers want to make progress in this area of their lives. They don't want to be stagnant. They don't want to, 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 to fall back and to be in bondage to sin. So faithful teaching shows the truth of the scriptures and then how that applies to ongoing struggles with the bondage of sin. So taken together, the pursuit of holiness and the turning away from sin are the application that we need in our ongoing sanctification. So maybe we could look at it from these two questions. What is the passage telling me about how I can be more like Christ? Right? How can I follow his example? How can I think his mind? How can I treat others in the same way that Christ would treat them? The second question would be this. What is this passage teaching me about my struggle with and um, against sin in my life? Is the sin being addressed in this text as a sin that I struggle with? How does this passage give a window into the bondage or the entanglements of the sin that I'm struggling with? How is the sin being dealt with? What are the effects of the sin revealed in this passage? And so on. And these are the two arms that, that Paul now is giving the teacher to say, this is what it's about. It's pushing us to be more like Christ, and it's pushing us away from sin. Now let's just bring this all to a close. Because handling the word of God is critically important. And teaching the word of God in the context of the church is critically important to the church, is critically important to all who are participants in the church. So I have three questions for you as we close. Number one, what kind of teacher are you going to be? What kind of teacher are you going to be? Casual? Flippant? Careful? Diligent? Let me just remind you of four examples to follow. The examples of the prophets. They were given the word of God. They spoke the word of God. In difficult circumstances. Then there's the example of Christ. He came. He spoke boldly. He clarified the issues. He said things like, You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. He confronted with the word. In other words, he was not afraid to say, This is what the word of God says. Old Testament, now let me tell you what that means. There's the examples of the apostles. They explained and they applied the word of God, the gospel to life. And of course, you can think about faithful teachers and preachers who have just been bold in proclaiming God's truth. The point is, to be a faithful teacher who's handling the word means that you are, you are simply reflecting the truth of God to those who are your hearers in a way that would be consistent 
with what the word of God is actually saying. Secondly, what kind of student or disciple are you going to be? Not only are you tasked with the privilege of teaching, you're also tasked with the privilege of sitting under teaching. Are you going to be humble, teachable? Are you going to be willing to be corrected? Are you going to be willing to be challenged? Are you going to keep your focus on the word rather than drift off or get sidetracked or caught with some kind of contemporary Christian trend? Are you an eager listener? And of course, the final question, which brings us back to the beginning, is this. How will you handle the word of God? Carelessly? Flippantly? Casually? Or as a great responsibility? God's treasure, his deposit, to handle it with care. Friends, God's given us the privilege of being ministers of his word. And it does say on the side of it, handle with care. It's a huge undertaking. It's no small thing. And how we, how we handle the word of God will have impact on how the church will grow toward Christ-likeness. Lord, help us today. We are humble and simple people, yet, Lord, we recognize the treasure you've given us. Lord, you you have warned us this morning to avoid these word wars, this irreverent babble. Lord, even... the the false teaching that comes out of those things. Lord, we know that there's all sorts of nonsense that's going on under the umbrella of Christendom that is a demonstration of people who are careless with your word, Lord, that have selfish intentions or are just completely ignorant, Lord, as to how to approach the word of God. May you give us a Lord, a spirit of wisdom to to see what is true and to see what is false. May we be discerning. Lord, may we not be caught up in things, Lord, that do not please you. And Lord, may we also be careful as we seek to encourage and protect one another, Lord, that we would not allow a brother or sister to wander off into some some false teaching though, that, will, that will undermine their walk with you. But Lord, help us to have an eagerness to please you. Uh, uh, an, an ethic, Lord, of, of work that is demanded by you as we handle your truth. And Lord, a, a desire to grow in our skillfulness of discerning and, and digging and gleaning from your truth. Lord, may it not just be about head knowledge. Lord, may it, it move us to say, Lord, this is how I can be more like your son. And Lord, this is how I can run away from the sin that is chasing me down. Oh, Lord, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for the, the privilege of having the freedom to minister it 
one-on-one in small groups, Lord, even as we gather together for corporate worship this morning. May we not take it lightly. May we handle your word with care. For your glory we ask in your precious name. Amen.